Good morning and happy Easter, everybody. He is risen. So early and you're doing so well. That's amazing. Let's let's lean into it again. He is risen. risen Welcome to Hope. Uh, Happy Easter again. What a great celebration this is already. After I saw the first half hour, the first service yesterday, we had services yesterday at 1, 3, 5, and 7. After that first half hour, I was like, oh, cool. I don't even have to preach. It's been that good. So uh, you've already experienced the joy and the celebration of Jesus' resurrection in a, in a spirit of its victory for us. Uh, and that clip, we call it our victory supercut around here, is basically our DVD movie collection that I dropped off to our video guys, and then they came up with that. That's just absolutely amazing. These scenes of victory moments. You know, Rocky, yo, Adrian, we did it! And even though he lost, he did it! He won his victory! He, he, he showed he could, and... And uh, the, the Katniss and the, com- and the Hunger Games coming in on fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, Rudy getting carried off the field with touchdown Jesus at Notre Dame celebrating as he's carried off the field in victory. What's the greatest victory in the history of your life as you think about what, if there was a movie compilation of the victory moments in your life, if somebody was there to film them? What would it be? What, what would it show you doing? It's kind of a happy question and thought, isn't it? To consider those moments in life where maybe you didn't see it coming and then this wonderful surprise came your way and it was a victory for you. A victory over who knows what, but it, it was this move, it was this transition, uh, transformation even from where you were to this thing that you'd always dreamed of or wanted and, and there it is. What, what are the greatest victories in your life? For me as a sports guy, a lot of those you know, come back to sports. I, when I was younger, I played a lot. Now that I'm older, I watch a lot. But uh, the greatest sports moment as a sports fan in my life happened just over five months ago now. <laughs> it was a beautiful fall day in Cleveland, Ohio. And God's team, the Chicago Cubs, finally prevailed after 108 years of despair, 108 years of, of pain and frustration. Do you remember where you were when the Chicago Cubs won the World Series? Okay, that's over the top. Most of you are like, I have no idea where I was. I'm not even sure. I'd forgotten they did. I didn't. You want to know where I was when they won the World Series? Take a look. Here's the 0-1. This is going to be a tough play. Victory, victory, yes, victory. That was my wife, Sally, and she was there with uh, her friend. No, I was me filming it, I, I got that. It, it was a wonderful moment. We were blessed to be two of the 38,000 or so people who got into that game in Cleveland. Long story, but it, it was awesome, and we um, were there to celebrate. For us, it's personal. We're Northsiders originally from the north side of Chicago, just a couple of CTA bus rides away from Wrigley Field where they have this wonderful tradition. And the tradition is that whenever they win, and they've been doing this for decades, even when they didn't win very often, whenever they win, they raise the victory flag. (laughs) And they put up the W to say that uh, they won today. It didn't happen yesterday, even though they were winning four to nothing. But never, I'm okay with that. People ask me, said, well, what happens if they don't win the World Series this year? 
I don't care. <laughs> I mean, it would be nice, that would be fine, but we, we won, all right? So that, that's it, that's all we needed. It was, if you've been waiting 108 years, all you need is one. That's just fine. You don't need two resurrections. One is good. That that's why it covers the whole thing. So any W flag that gets flown at Wrigley Field now after any win is just a bonus. It's just frosting on the cake. It's just this wonderful kind of addition to, to the way it goes. What's the greatest victory in your life? I mean, these are just silly examples. Sports are, are what they are. I mean, it's not life, right? Oh, wait, I'm speaking to a culture where sometimes we get that one confused. It's not, it's not the main, it's not going to ruin your day, right? If your team doesn't win, it's not going to, it's not going to create, you're not going to like put sports ahead of the more important things in life, right? In your schedules, you're not going to, you're not going to push God away to make sure your kids can be in a soccer tournament, right? I mean, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't do that. But if you did, if you were ever tempted to do that, then we'd start to kind of lose our balance along the way because there's a greater victory that we get to celebrate today and I'm so glad you're here to do that. There's a victory that God has given to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that isn't just a victory for a carpenter from Nazareth who ended up in Jerusalem after leading this love revolution, after he was crucified. It's not just his victory because he overcame death for himself. It's the victory that we experience because through faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you belong to him. To be a Christian literally means not that you're a believer. It literally means you belong to Christ. That's what Christian means. You belong to him. So what happens to him as a Christian happens to you. And so when he dies on the cross, your sin is put to death. It's crucified. When he is raised from the dead since you belong to him, so are you. Hear this. His victory on Easter with his resurrection is your victory. His resurrection is your resurrection. His life after death is your life after death. His hope is your hope. His celebration and the victory that he got to experience is your victory. And our celebration today, it's something that we get to embrace because we belong to Christ, because we belong to Jesus. When victory banners are raised, it's actually got some biblical history to it. All the way back into the Old Testament, tribes of Israel on their exodus from Egypt into the freedom of a new life in the promised land would raise banners. One of the things that often gets forgotten in the exodus story, the central story of the Old Testament, is that it wasn't just a small congregation of 40 or 50 people who were following Moses across the Red Sea. It wasn't even a large congregation of four or 5,000. It was, most historians will estimate, in the hundreds of thousands of Israelites who were crossing that Red Sea together and wandering in the wilderness for over 40 years. Some historians even estimate it was millions of Israelites who were coming out of Egypt and wandering through the wilderness for 40 years on their way to the Promised Land. Logistically, that would be a bit of a nightmare, wouldn't it? To organize 40 years of wandering around with a minimum of hundreds of thousands of people who are trying to do life together? 
One of the things they did to try to keep that organized is they raised flags over the 12 tribes of Israel. They divided people up into these 12 tribes based on lineage, and they'd raise a flag according to that tribe. And then underneath that tribe, other historians believe they raised flags that were more specific to families or, or, or to groups. And so when you would come into the camp on, in the wilderness, you would look for your flags, and you would reside and you would camp out under that flag. So the victory flags, the banners that were raised, in biblical times were raised to identify placement, where we belong in this world. But the second thing they did is they also signified a victory over enemies. Hear that part. A victory over enemies. A victory. It was the victory flag because as God's people were wandering in the wilderness, they were attacked. They had enemy nations who wanted to push them back to Egypt, who wanted to annihilate them, who wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. But God prevailed. His providence and his power interceded and pushed back the enemies for his people. And whenever that happened, they'd raise the victory flag. They'd raise the flag to say, we're here, God is with us, and our enemies will be defeated. So the victory flag had those two key kinds of roles. It signified two things. One is this is where you belong, and the second one was there's victory for you over your enemies when this flag is raised. Today, on Easter Sunday, we raise a victory flag. We raise a victory flag as people who belong to Jesus Christ. A victory over sin, a victory over death, a victory over the darkness of evil that surrounds us. Victory. Throughout the Bible, there are all these athletic metaphors. Paul must have been a track athlete or something like that because frequently he would, he would liken the spiritual life to the discipline of an athlete. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, you know that athletes discipline their bodies so that they can win a prize that's going to fade away, a trophy that's going to end up in a box in a garage someday for us. We know that athletes do all and dedicate so much time and sacrifice their bodies and do all this training so that they can receive something that isn't even, a lot, isn't even going to last. And Paul, as an athlete, a former athlete at least, says, so that kind of makes sense. That's what we do as athletes. But he says, but those of us who follow Jesus Christ, in a similar way, spiritually, we discipline ourselves, spiritual disciplines, prayer, worship, Bible reading, study of God's word, giving, serving, loving, reaching out, forgiving, doing things that Christ did because we belong to him, practicing the spiritual disciplines, carrying them out, keeping a Sabbath day, doing all these things so that we can grow spiritually. We discipline ourselves spiritually so that, here's the best part, we can win a prize that doesn't fade away. We can win a trophy that's forever and is eternal. So the victory we get to celebrate today as you think about the greatest victories in your life, I'm here to tell you some really good news today. This one is even better. This one that God offers you and me today goes above and beyond the greatest victories of your life, the greatest things that you've ever experienced. What God is offering us here today isn't just a story about something that happened once upon a time almost 2,000 years ago and half a world away. What it is is a story about us. It's a story where God weaves us right into it. My victory is your victory. And this victory is the greatest victory in your life when you just take a moment to ponder it and think about it. So where are you running these days? All throughout the Bible, there's these stories of people who are running. Paul says, run to win. Discipline your body, discipline your, your soul spiritually so that you can re receive this eternal prize. 
of life everlasting in the kingdom of heaven. In biblical times, there were people who would uh, run. In the Easter story, there are people who were running everywhere. That's part of this story that I think we often miss. We get the empty tomb, the soldiers are there, the Roman regiment's guarding it, it's sealed, and we get into the details of that, who showed up, what, how Jesus appeared to them, all those stories, which are, which are the most important part. But one of the details that we miss that I think is worth noting this morning is all the running that's going on. On Sunday morning, early, as the sun was rising, it was Sabbath on Saturday, and the Jewish Sabbath, and so nobody could come to anoint Jesus' dead body according to their religious custom on the Sabbath. You couldn't do any work like that on the Sabbath. So they had to wait till sunrise on Sunday. So on sunrise Sunday, John's Gospel, chapter 20, says Mary Magdalene came to the tomb because that's what she was going to do, follow her religious custom as one of Jesus' followers. When she got to the tomb, she was heartbroken to discover the stone had been rolled away. And so the Bible says, here we go, we're going to start running. She ran. She ran back to where all the, all the other disciples were hiding out for fear that they'd be crucified next. She ran to tell them the horrifying news. It's not just bad enough that the one who said he's the bread of life, the light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life, was crucified on a cross just five days after we all marched into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and everyone hailed him as a king, those same crowds turned against him, insisted and demanded that he be crucified, and now it's not enough that that all happened and we're completely crestfallen because of it, but now somebody apparently has done something to his body, the, tomb has, the tombstone has been rolled away, he's not there, what are we going to do? She ran to tell the other disciples. Peter and John, representing the disciples, hear the news and guess what they do? They run to the tomb. They're not walking, they're not stopping at Starbucks on the way, they run to the tomb. They go directly and straight to the tomb because they wanna see what is going on. John, uh, who most Biblical scholars believe wrote the Gospel of John. Other people believe it was maybe a secretary who followed him and gave John the name in honor of him. Whatever the case, it makes more sense to, 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 when you read it and study it and put it together with the rest of the New, New Testament to believe that John actually penned it himself. And if he did, this is fascinating. Because when John listed the 12 disciples in his Gospel, he listed the other 11 and then he never referred to himself by name. Kind of like a Laura Ingalls Wilder third person approach to writing a story of what happened back in the day in the little house on the prairie. John writes, and it's kind of funny, have you ever notice on social media people who do humble brags? I hate it when everybody tells me how good I look. I don't think I look good at all today. Humble brag, right? I, I hate it when, that's such a drag for me, when people always tell me how wonderful I am. I just hate that. John's doing a little bit of humble bragging here at the end of the gospel. Because the way he refers to himself, get this, he, he names the other 11 and he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved the most. <laughs> the beloved disciple. Sometimes he calls himself the other disciple. But, but uh, whatever it is, he says, so Peter and the other disciple ran to the tomb. After Mary ran to tell them what had happened, they run to the tomb. And then he adds, and of course, the other disciple got there first <laughs> because he's way faster than Peter. Peter, you know, needs more time on the elliptical. I, I'm in shape. And so I'm running to the tomb. And then Peter, huffing and puffing, apparently, gets to the tomb and he goes straight in because John just knows. 
John just knows. I have a feeling I'm going to get to heaven someday, and John's going to go, I'll word with you, preacher boy. Uh, it's okay. There's grace in heaven, right? So, so here comes John and Peter, and Peter goes dashing into the tomb, and he sees something peculiar. And then John says, and then I went into the tomb, and I saw the same thing. What did they see? Grave clothes lying on the tomb bed where Jesus' dead body had been put on Friday after he was crucified. What's odd about that, and we know this from just a few chapters before in John chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, do you remember what he said when Lazarus came out of the tomb? Unwrap him. Because he's been mummified. He's, he's got the mummy wrappings all around him. That's what you did to a dead body when you laid it in the tomb. You can't unwrap yourself, you're bound. So to see these mummy grave cloths lying on the bed, well, that's odd. One of the most popular uh, anti-resurrection theories that's out there, you can catch this on the Discovery Channel sometime. Some guy wrote a book and he's a professor somewhere and it's not that he wants to sell you his books at all, but he has this idea that maybe Jesus' body was stolen. And, And that's way more plausible than he rose from the dead. Until you look at the grave clothes. If his body's stolen, not only that, but the... The linen that was over his head, Peter and John both saw this, and John notes it. It was folded up, that linen was neatly, and laying on top of the tomb bed. If you're a thief, just imagine you're a thief for a moment. Hopefully none of you can say, well, I don't have to imagine it, I am. Imagine you're a thief. And imagine your mission that weekend is to steal Jesus' body out of the tomb. Never mind that you're going to have to break through a Roman regiment of guards. Never mind you're going to have to push away a two-ton tombstone that's been sealed by the Roman government because they've got a lot riding on this. Never mind you're going to have to find a way through all of them. And so stealing a body, this is going to be very difficult. But now you're going to have to break into the tomb, pull out his dead body, and even though you're in a hurry like most thieves are when they're stealing something, you stop and you say, hey, well, wait. Let's make the bed before we go. Let's unwrap him here. Let's not just drag, but let's unwrap him, leave the linens here, fold them up neatly, and leave them on top of the bed, and then we can take his dead body out of here. Who would do that? No one I can think of. Next week, I'm going to preach a sermon, start of a series called Since You Asked, which is based on questions people outside of the church ask church people that, that make them uh, things like, why did Jesus rise from the dead? Or how do you, how, where's the evidence for Jesus' resurrection? I'll preach on that next weekend and a bunch of other things over the next five weeks that people ask from the outside looking in. Come on back. But for today, enough to say that Jesus was leaving his followers' signs. He rose from the dead, and he left the linens there, neatly folded up, because he knew Peter and John were coming, and they would look in. And so John says, as soon as I saw it, I believed. I believed what he said he was going to do actually happened. As hard as that is to believe. I believed when Jesus said to us three times over the last year and a half, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the authorities, I'm going to be crucified, and three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. It all came back to John and he believed, and eventually Peter believed too. And so they ran back and told the other disciples. It was their victory moment. Mary was about to have her victory moment. 
She came back to the tomb, somehow missed Peter and John, came back to the tomb and was still weeping. And a man she's supposed to be the gardener at the tomb garden said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And Mary, without turning, he's, she's got her back to him, says, sir, if you've taken his body away, just tell me where it is so that I can do what I came here to do this morning. According to our religious custom." And then the man she supposed to be the gardener, who was Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, called her out by name. And you may not think that that's a real big deal or cause for a victory celebration until you stop and you think, how good your name sounds when somebody says it in love, who knows you, who knows your story, who walks through life with you. And when your name comes out of that person's mouth, it's unique and it blesses you. That's all Jesus had to say. Mary. Mary, without even looking, immediately recognized the voice. And it was at that moment she had her victory. And she turned to him and said, Rabbi, teacher, Rabboni, it's you. Peter and John had their victory moment when they saw what they saw in the tomb. Mary had her victory moment when she heard the word of God reaching out to her. You can too today. Thomas was about to have his victory moment. Jesus showed up in the place where all the disciples were hiding out, the risen Jesus. And Thomas, remember, was the doubter. He's the one who said, I'm not gonna believe unless I get some evidence. And so Jesus says, go ahead, do your investigation. Go ahead and check out the holes where the nails pierced me through my hands that nailed me to the cross. Go ahead and look to see where the sword pierced my side. Go ahead and see it so that you can believe it, Thomas, but you'd be more blessed if you could believe it without seeing. This was Thomas's victory moment. And at the moment he realized the truth of Jesus' resurrection, he fell to his knees and he cried out, my Lord and my God. Victory moment for Thomas. Victory moment when he saw the evidence. Victory, and you can see the evidence too. Come on back next week. Victory moment for Peter and John when they looked into the tomb. Victory moment for Mary when she heard the word of God. Have you ever had a victory moment like that with God? A, a, a point in your journey where it just got, God got real for you? Where it came together? Don't, I don't want to push that too hard because sometimes that makes people feel like, oh, I have to have one of those moments. And if I don't have one of those moments, maybe I'm not really saved or maybe I'm not really a Christian. It's not what I'm saying because that's not what the Bible's saying. Some people have those moments and it's a blessing. Other people, those moments are more of a compilation of things that happen over a long series of time. Days, weeks, months, years, decades even sometimes. Some people come to faith in a microwave, get zapped sort of way, and some people come to faith in more of a crock pot, slow cook kind of way. Either way, you come to the same place. Don't push that. But at some point, whether it's a slow cook or, or getting zapped in the microwave, at some point spiritually, it's worth stepping back and looking at it all and pondering it and saying, my Lord and my God, this victory is mine, isn't it? It's for me. And so this Easter celebration this morning isn't just about something that happened once upon a time. It's about you right now. It's about what God offers you. 
through this story. It's about the greatest victory of your entire existence, your whole life. Because God's giving you a victory over enemies. You and I, we have no hope of defeating on our own. We can't stop sinning. We, we can't overcome evil in this world by ourselves, no matter how hard we try. We, we can't overcome death. Oh, we try, but we can't do it. And so here comes your Savior. Here comes your victor, and he brings the victory to you. So where are you running these days? Who are you following? What, what, what finish line are you charging for? What's the thing that's most important in your life? What gets priority in your schedules? What do you put first? Because there is no greater victory than the one that God pours out for you through this Easter story right now. Victory. As we're running through life, sometimes it's easy to lose our way and the darkness overwhelms us. And so we need some, we need some light. I'm trying really hard not to shine this in any of your eyes. But isn't it fascinating when you just think about it? The difference light makes in the darkness you ever notice when light and darkness fight, light always wins? And it reveals things that maybe you missed. And things that you've seen, if you've been around here for a while, thousands of times before, but you never noticed the sweat stains of a human being into the cross until you see the light. And you start to see something that's always been there but you never noticed before. I'm the light of the world, Jesus says. And you live in a dark world, and we need this light. The darkness surrounds us. We live in a shaky world that feels like it's getting shakier all the time. You don't need me to tell that. You can see the news, watch it, read it, take it in. And it happens from all sorts of different directions. And we can deny it and sweep it away and try to build little bubbles that we live in and say, well, our bubble here is not, cannot be penetrated and I'm just going to pretend none of that bad stuff's happening out there. And I mean, that's teach his own. That's fine. You can do that. Sometimes denial can be a blessing, but sometimes it can be kind of deceiving. We live in a dark world and we need the one who comes with victory of light over that darkness. Sometimes it's not just the external forces and the, the evil that's outside of us. Sometimes it's the darkness that's inside of us. Sometimes it's the, uh, the sin that comes from within rather than the evil that comes from without. Sin, the Bible says, is like, man, these things are heavy. I don't know why I decided to do this as an illustration, but I do know why. Because the Bible refers to it in this way and says that our sin is like a, it's like another, like another link in a chain. And every time we sin, it just keeps getting heavier and heavier and a new link is added. And after a while, the weight starts to wear us down. And you say, oh, I don't need to release this. I don't need, oh man, I don't need grace for this sin. All I, all I really need is just to, convince the world around me and myself and, and I'll try to talk God into it along the way too if I'm a religious person that it's not so bad. I mean, a lot of people have too much pride or have greed issues or lust issues or, or anger issues or, 
or, or, or, or they're workaholics, or they're lazy, or, or, or there could be all sorts of things, or they gossip a lot. Or, I mean, a lot of people do that. I mean, that's, what's, what's so wrong about that? A lot of people don't keep the Sabbath. A lot of people don't care. A lot, a lot of people have bad stuff coming out of their mouth. A lot of people are prejudiced. A, a lot of people have issues. A, a lot of, everybody has issues. So it's okay, right? A lot of people have, have hurt other people. A lot of people have broken hearts. It's okay, right? I mean, I can carry it, and it's a lot easier if I blame everybody else and just talk about the darkness that's out there that, that goes after me. It's a lot easier if I can be the one who's getting hit and, and focus on that because there's truth in that. You are getting hit, and people aren't always fair to you. But the Bible says if we say we have no sin, it's like saying we, I'm not, I don't have any chains on right now. If we say if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us, but the Bible goes on to say, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his light shines in the darkness. Psalm 107 says, some sat in darkness and deepest gloom, imprisoned in iron chains of misery. Because we're stuck in our sin. And worse, we act like it's no big deal. But it's weighing us down. I mean, it's killing us. Here's the worst part. It's stealing life away from us. And it's stealing the abundant and full life God wants us to have, even this side of heaven. And so he goes to the cross. And he takes our sin and he crucifies it. He says, you've got chains. I'm the chain breaker. Oh, that feels good. You know how when you let go of something heavy, the release, you just want to, all of a sudden you're charismatic. Woo, hallelujah. Your hands just go straight up. You got chains, you've got sin. You know what? Instead of pretending you don't have it, instead of continuing to play this deception game where you're really just deceiving yourself, not God, why not just take it to the cross? Why not just take it to the one who wins a victory over the sin and the chains that, that, that weigh us down and that steal life away from us? You see, Jesus' death and resurrection, among other things, is about bringing light into our darkness and about bringing freedom for our sin and forgiveness, grace for our shame and the guilt that we carry. Some of you are carrying guilt that's so heavy, you don't think you're worthy. You're not even sure you're worthy to show up in God's house. And that keeps you away, except maybe on Easter and Christmas. So you're what we call around here affectionately, woomers and tumors. We're glad you're here. But you're welcome here all the time. This isn't a hangout for perfect people. This is a hospital for sinners. This is a place where nobody's perfect, including for sure the guy preaching to you right now. We've all got issues and sin that we need to take to the cross. We've all got chains. And the good news for you today, Jesus Christ is the chain breaker. He's the light for your darkness. He's the grace for your shame. And he wants to send you out of this place different than the way you came in. It's the power of Easter and the victory in this story. It's not just about something that happened once upon a time. It's about you right now. Rather than me just stand up here and talk about the chains and, and the chain breaker, I think it's good to have a guy who's the lead singer for the Nottas in our church family. Let's have him come up and sing about it. Welcome Mike Butterworth, everybody.
You've been walking that same old road for miles and miles. You've been hearing the same old voice tell the same old lies. If you're trying to fill the same old holes inside, it's a better life. It's a better life. You've got faith. He's a brave taker. We've all searched for the light of day in the dead of night We've all found ourselves worn out from the same old fight We've all run to things we know just ain't right When there's a better life, there's a better life You've got pain, he's a pain taker Psalm 107 says, He led them, God does, from darkness and deepest gloom. He snaps our chains. He breaks our chains. He forgives us of all of our sin. He shines light into the darkness for, for, the, for, the, for the things that cause fear and anxiety and worry around us. Don't be distracted from this. Remember the movie Up where the dog always gets distracted? Squirrel! He's like doing something really important or having a conversation with a friend and all of a sudden there's a squirrel that comes in, squirrel! And he completely loses his focus. You realize you've got squirrels too, right? We all, almost, all, you might be the exception to the rule, but almost all of us have a squirrel and it's probably in your purse or your pocket right now. It's your phone. 
or you're looking at it, right? I can see everything up here. I mean, your little face illuminates and you're like probably looking up Bible verses. I mean, it's so obvious, but that's okay. Squirrel! Jesus is the resurrection of the life. He wins the victory. Squirrel! Don't be distracted from this. Hear this good news. I'm not just talking about you, just so you know. The other day, Sally, my wife and I sat down for dinner and I was really busy because, you know, I'm a busy person. And so I sat down and I didn't even have apparently time to have dinner with my wife and a conversation that was uninterrupted without distractions because I was checking my phone because I kept getting buzzed and I kept getting messages. And you know, when you get buzzed, you have to stop everything you're doing. This is the cultural rule. Stop everything you're doing, no matter how good it is, and check the message that just buzzed in. Because clearly that's going to be way more important than what you're doing right here. So I was checking my messages. I kept getting buzzed, and I kept, you know, text, just won't be right here. It's a great dinner, thanks for doing it, and text back. And I kept getting buzzed, and then finally I got buzzed one more time, and it was a message from my wife that said, stop it. <laughs> you're missing a really good dinner. Don't be distracted from this good news today. Don't be distracted by all the really important things you're doing, that I'm doing, from this greatest of all victories, from, from, from this best of all the best news that you'll ever hear. Uh, on your list of the greatest things that have ever happened to you, folks, this is it. No matter, just wh whether or not we acknowledge it doesn't change the fact that this is it. This is the stuff that defeats enemies you and I can't defeat. It's light for our darkness. It's forgiveness for our sin, breaking of our chains. And best of all, I saved the best for last, it's life for our death. The hourglass here, just a simple hourglass, is used for a lot of different things. My grandpa used to use it for my grandma. My grandma was a bit of a talker. And so my grandpa would take an hourglass whenever she'd call one of her friends or one of her friends would call on the phone and he'd flip the hourglass over and say, when this goes out, you have to get off the phone because I need it. So that was a kind of a quirky couple, but they were awesome. An hourglass historically actually symbolizes something a little bit more morbid. I don't know if you know this or not, but it signifies our earthly life. This is what you've got left, and this is what's gone. And the sand just keeps running. I don't know if you can see. Oh, I guess you kind of can in the screen there. It keeps running from top to bottom, and we, we don't like to think about this. In fact, so much so that sometimes we just push it away. We say, I, don't even want, I don't want to hear about it. I want to talk about it. I want to think about it. My mortality. I, I, I don't want that to be the deal. But then we're hit with grief or mourning or death or sickness or disease or illness and we come face to face with the reality of it. So the great thing about being a Christian, one of the great things, maybe the greatest thing, we get to tell the truth. We don't have to deny the reality that the sand up here is going to run out. And Jesus has that covered because of the story we get to share and celebrate today. Because he took on death and he won a victory. And hear it again, it's not just for him, it's for you. Because you belong to him. What happens to him happens to you. And so someday the sand's going to run through this glass. I mean, we try all sorts of things. We're funny people, aren't we, the human race? And we should. The Bible says you should take care of your bodies. You should move them. You should exercise them. You should treat them like temples. You should put only good things into them. You shouldn't put garbage in. And if you do you're probably going to slow down the sand. You're probably going to 
going to decrease how fast this sand runs out down into this sand. You'll push back your death. That's all true. It's biblical even. But you can't stop it. No matter how many health clubs you join, no matter how many diets you download on the internet, no matter how many lifestyle changes you make, no matter how many yoga classes you take, no matter all the books you read on health and nutrition, you can slow it down and that's a good thing. I encourage you to do that. Get the most out of this life God has given to you this side of heaven. It matters, it counts, it's holy. But you can't stop it. The sand's gonna keep moving. In two days, it's gonna be the 13th anniversary of my dad's death, who died of a sudden cardiac arrest at age 70. A few weeks ago, one of my best friends from grade school died in a house fire, my age. When I was 22 years old, one of my best friends from college, a guy I played basketball with in college, went mountain climbing in Oregon. Six foot eight guy, mountain climbing in Oregon. What is, we were worried about him. He slipped and he fell immediately to his death. Life is fragile. And deep down we know that. But to be somebody who belongs to Christ means we ultimately know it's not the end. When this sand runs out, it's not over. Because when Jesus looked death, your death, square in the face, he said, the world says that's the end. I say it's not. I say it's a new beginning. I say when this sand runs out, I got more sand for you. It's almost like Jesus is saying in his resurrection, to you, not just sort of vaguely to some people out there, directly to you. It's like he's bringing a package straight to the doorway of your heart today. Express mail, almost like it's an overnight package that wants to make sure you receive it. When this runs out, I've got more. And the supply of sand I've got for you never runs out. It's eternal. Hey, what's going on? Well, I got a package here for you. Uh, let's see here. That's good intern right there. That's great. I'm pretty sure he's full-time staff. He's I'm not an intern. I'm pretty sure he's still an intern. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Well, hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. I, I like that tie. What, what's... Did, they, uh, did they come with a clip? <laughs> no, I tied it myself. You tied it yourself. Yeah, All right. Well, I got a special delivery here. It comes to uh, Hope Lutheran. Oh, actually, see, it says Lutheran Church of Hope. The people get that wrong all the time. No I'm pretty deal. sure it's Hope Lutheran. Pretty sure. There's a big sign out there that says Hope. Anyway, anyway, I got a package here. Uh, hey, you know what? I hear this is a great church. It is. Especially the music. It's not bad. I hear yeah, it's really it's good. Really, it's fantastic. The preaching yeah. is, uh, I yeah, know, that's a true. Bit, yeah, you never I, know. Yeah. I hear you got a guy, his name is David Lee Ross. Yeah. No. He's <laughs> your, uh, He's your worship no, guy, that's, right? That's the old lead singer of Van Halen, uh, sort what? of. It's Perry Ross is our worship director. I'm pretty sure it's David Lee Ross, but uh, agree yeah. to disagree. Uh, anyway. Per Perry's a weird guy, but you'll, it grows on you. Yeah, you'll we'll see. Yeah, uh, sure. Well, I got a package here. It says it's uh, an unlimited and eternal outpouring of, uh, yeah, dessert stands. Dessert let me, stands. Let me see that. Yeah. It's, it's desert sand. I'm pretty sure it's dessert stands. <laughs> pretty sure. Oh, I guess that would explain the big wheelbarrow of sand there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it is des sand, it is yeah. desert sands. Uh, but uh, anyway, is that um, it? No, I, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg, pal. I got a whole truckload. Come on in, bring it in, guys. What? You got more? That you got more? It's eternal I mean, outpouring. It's it's never gonna end. I'm pretty sure it's never gonna end. 
That's just what I was talking about. Wow, what a your quinky, timing Dink. is perfect. Hey, Thank you very much. You mind if I go get a seat? I hear David Lee Ross is coming back out in just a little bit to sing yeah, another he's song. Yeah, right, 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 I don't want to miss it. Thanks. Th th thanks a lot, uh, David Lee Ross, everybody. There he goes. Thank you. And there it comes, a symbol of our hope. An outpouring of God's love from heaven for you. I don't know how to make this any simpler for you. This is going to run out. That never will. Victory. Victory for you. For every single one of us, this sand is going to run out someday. But the victory is yours. Because God keeps life going for you. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even though you're going to die, even though the sand is going to run out, yet you will live forever. It never runs out. Who else and what else in this world can give you anything close to this? What this symbolizes? The one who's the way, the truth, and the life comes to the front door of your heart today and says, look, I'm knocking, let me in. What I have for you is the greatest victory of your entire existence. What I have for you is something that's gonna last forever and ever. What I have for you is a victory banner that you can raise, that is the greatest of all victories. First Corinthians chapter 15 says, in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where's your victory now, death? Where's your sting now? Thanks be to God. Death is swallowed up in victory, 1 Corinthians 15 says. Death, your death, has been swallowed up in victory because Jesus Christ, the one you belong to, he died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, and you belong to him. So what happens to him happens to you. His victory is your victory. His life is your life. His hope is your hope. His expectation is your expectation. His joy, his celebration, his victory. It's for you today. How do you get it? Got to do a bunch of religious things. Got to figure out the Bible. Got to, got to study the scriptures before you can get this victory. No, 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 that's what you do after you get it. All you have to do to receive this victory is trust it. Believe it. Have the victory moment that Peter and John had when they looked in the tomb, that Mary had when she heard the word of God, that Thomas had when he investigated the evidence. Do any or all of that, and then trust this promise from God. Trust the resurrection and the life. Trust the victory that he wins for you. The one who comes to you today and doesn't just say, Happy Easter, here's a chocolate egg, which is fun. He comes to you today and he says, victory for you, victory for you, light for your darkness, forgiveness for your sin, life for your death. Someday, someday in heaven, <laughs> promise me we'll do this. We'll have eternity to schedule it. So I'll send you all a memo. We're gonna meet somewhere in heaven someday and I'm gonna preach one more sermon. It's gonna be awesome. I'm gonna stand up and I'm gonna say, I told you. <laughs> See, I told you. He is risen.
He is risen! Come on, pretend you're Pentecostal. You got up early to say this this morning. He is risen! He is risen indeed. So will you.